Hey there, conductors. If you've ever felt that you're not quite sure what to do next when you're studying a score, maybe you don't even know where to start with a difficult piece. Maybe you study one piece too much and then you realize at the first rehearsal that you don't know another one well enough. Or maybe you're a new conductor and you don't know what score study is. I'm excited to share that I'm finally publishing and sharing my score study checklist. I've been refining this for 12 years now, and I'm so excited to share it. It is going to walk you through my structure, my process to make sure that I learn every score that I need to learn well enough and so that nothing falls through the cracks. So it covers everything that you need to know. There's a link in the show notes. Go ahead and click it, sign up, and you'll get that score study checklist sent right to your email. You'll also get access to an eight-minute video of me explaining what each section is and how I use it to organize all the music that I need to learn. It's only eight minutes, so it's not going to take you a whole hour to learn how to study better, how to put up a process for your score study and how to make sure that nothing is falling through the cracks. So again, click the link in the show notes, and I hope to see you soon. Now, please enjoy this episode of Podium Time. Welcome to Podium Time, the podcast for conductors and students. I mean, I was annoying. I would ask everyone I took a conducting masterclass with, basically ask the same question, do you think I can do this for a career? It made me realize I could do this. And once I realized I could do this... I was unleashed. Then I had no excuse. (laughs) Then it was only on me. And I know if it was the opposite, I would be like, cool, I'm not doing this. I'm going to find my lane that I'm the best at and be the best at that, whether it's in business or law or whatever it was going to be. I was going to set myself up for success, read the room and read the world and set up these bottlenecks. And I just knew that I wanted to be exceptional, whatever I did. Welcome to Podium Time today. We are talking with Ankush Bahel. Ankush, thank you so much for being here today. Pleasure is mine. It's nice to meet you. It's nice to meet all of you listening. Absolutely. So we are going to be talking a lot about your journey to where you are. So could you maybe start us on that journey now? Where did you um, start getting the inklings of a conductor? It was actually pretty late. Um, I played a bunch of instruments growing up. I started on percussion when I was four, played violin, uh, started wind on, uh, when the wind ensemble conductor came and interviewed us all, I started on French horn and he said, oh, you should play French horn. You have good ears. And of course I responded, what's a French horn? Because <laughs> I was in fourth grade or third grade at the time. Yeah. But, you know, I just played a bunch of instruments growing up, picked up piano, picked up trumpet, did marching band, did orchestra, did orchestra later in high school, um, was mainly doing French horn, um, kind of switched from violin to that as my best instrument. And that continued to college. I went to an undergraduate liberal arts education in California at UC Berkeley. I went in undeclared, under what's it called? Under Undecided, undeclared. Zero, zero, slash, zero, zero, whatever bubble that was. Yeah. And um, yeah, the, I just went in with an open mind, what college, what might bring, what music might bring, um, if anything. It wasn't really on my radar to be a conductor, or to be a professional musician. Um, I was a very good young Indian immigrant, son of Indian immigrants, going to earn money, be a doctor, be a lawyer, be an engineer. But jokes on my parents, that did not happen. <laughs> but, you know, I went to Berkeley, um, but a bunch, uh, since it was pretty local, I was probably, I grew up like an hour away from Berkeley. Mm-hmm. So um, 
I had a lot of friends from youth orchestra and my high school go to Berkeley. And um, so I remember meeting them my freshman year and saying, you know, I really want to do music classes because I want to learn more about what I love. And they all said, oh, no, you should. You, if you just take music appreciation class, you're going to be bored. <laughs> um, take, you know, take some music major classes. So I took the music major entrance exam, passed out of some things I didn't think I would. I don't know how still. I don't know how, honestly. Mm-hmm. And um, and I just realized I could kind of wrap up this like fun little music major in a couple of years, at least the, the core requirements. And then I could do my real major when I my senior year, junior, senior year upper division courses so i started on the music major freshman year knew knowing that i would double sophomore year i found a rhetoric major that i really fell in love with a professor i really fell in love with and i thought that was a really cool major both completely useless and will make no money in (laughs) your life so my parents were super happy um so to fast forward and that was not very fast but i just played instruments played in the orchestra played in the wind ensemble played in the marching band at berkeley too and was just doing as much music as i could and um when I went looking for upper division courses at, at Cal, I saw a conducting class and I s- thought I should try to take it. Um, why not? And so that was probably my junior or senior year of Berkeley. And it just kind of was super interesting to me. Um, it's like it is to all of us. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, I can do not just my instrument. I can do lots of different things. And I can study a score instead of practice. I can learn about harmony and learn more about theory and composition and languages and there's a physicality to it and uh, there's a personality to it. There's a social aspect to it. There's a gregarious, you have to be a certain personality. Um, there's a leadership quality quality to it, obviously. So it just kind of drew me in the same way it draws all of us. Um, but the most, the key part of that class and that experience was that my teacher was super encouraging. And I think he saw something in my physicality or my personality where he thought that um, I could actually do this. And, and his name is David Milnes, and he has a couple of pretty solid conducting undergrad students that went on to good conservatories and good assistant conductor jobs and are still conducting and doing pretty good, pretty well. Um, so he kind of, I always blame him. He was the start <laughs> of it. But it's really all my youth orchestra conductors. Leo Eiler at the California Youth Symphony was a phenomenal composer and conductor. Alistair Neal at the San Francisco Symphony Youth Orchestra was a really wonderful musician and conductor and rehearser and had great technique and you know all these people influence us in in hindsight hindsight's 2020 you see down the road it's like oh i do this because of alistair and i do this because of david and you try to incorporate the things that are good and you throw out the things that are that are not you Hmm. and um you become yourself eventually when one day i'll grow up Mm -hmm. but it had a lot of wonderful encouragement um and at Berkeley and with those co- those conductors and I decided to give it a shot. Yeah. So the way I kind of was thinking about conducting as I would think about any, nearly any career is that um, I don't want to be a failure at it. I don't want to be bad at it. I want to, I don't want to work so hard at something I loved no matter what it was and never get to where I wanted to be. Does that make sense? I never, I never mm-hmm. achieve what I, an unrealistic goal. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So I was very measured and thoughtful about my process of becoming a quote unquote conductor. Yeah. This is where I broke it down. Um, first, I made sure I created my created bottlenecks for myself. Um, 
and those those came at multiple points in my career um up until pretty recently i i gave myself tried to be as objective as possible looking back at where i was and where i wanted to be in three years and if i was able to get there in three years or two years or one year um so the first one i created for myself was you know i graduated uc berkeley in a double major and i took the lsats and i took the gmats um and I thought I would either go to grad school in business or law if I didn't want it, if I didn't make it in conducting. Mm-hmm. And I had a decent GPA and I was like, I can get into a decent law school and the LSAT scores last for five years. Okay. So I had that phone call with my parents and I said, look, I'm going to, if I don't get into a top grad school in conducting in two or three years, then I'm either going to really lower my expectations in terms of a conducting career, just have music in my life in some capacity, teaching, whatever, like we all do at the beginning, or go to law school. Mm -hmm. Um, To which my mom said, you'll never get married and no one will love you and you'll never have any money. (laughs) Uh, So I said, cool. So I made that one year or two years. So I I kind of of had to uh, made sure that I, Went through my bottleneck. So I took a year off from Berkeley. After I graduated Berkeley, I took a year study in Michigan with Kenneth Kiesler. Also very lucky to meet him and get to know him. Excellent teacher. And exactly what I needed at the time. Because yeah. once I realized I wanted to go into conducting grad school, I realized I knew nothing. <laughs> and David Milnes at Berkeley told me I knew nothing. He's like, you have a great technique and you have a certain something, but you don't know anything about anything. Yeah. And I'm like, you're right. So... <laughs> In order to get into the top grad schools, I had to learn about all the stuff we don't learn as an undergrad music major, whether it's mm-hmm. the keys of Beethoven symphonies like Gustav Meyer wants to ask you at Peabody, RIP, bless Mr. Meyer, or it's um, transpositions of instruments and Latin and, mm-hmm. you know, all orchestration stuff and you know, score reading and ear training that you didn't really have to do at a high level necessarily, yeah. certain piano chops, you know. Of course, music history and things like that. Um, and then just score study. So I didn't know enough of that. And I hadn't dedicated enough to that because I was busy doing a double major and having every extracurricular activity I could think of at Cal. And so I really enjoyed my year at Michigan. I was able to s- observe everything Ken did, observe his studio classes, see his rehearsals, see concerts at UMS, which is a phenomenal music presenter. I saw Berlin Phil with Abato. I, mean, I saw everything. It was phenomenal. Awesome. Yeah. Came coming to Hill Auditorium in, in Michigan. I saw Mark Morris Dance Company. I saw the Royal Shakespeare Company. Like all, in, I was there for one yeah. year. And I saw <laughs> like some of the best art I've ever seen. And I lived in New York for 12 years, so it was a pretty amazing year. Yeah, yeah. Studied with a musicianship teacher who made me cry once a month at least. Um, <laughs> only once a month. Yeah, only once a month. <laughs> she was the best. And Marianne Ploger. And um, yeah, it's a. Uh, I had to do make up for what I felt I needed to learn or to justify having a career or yeah. at least a shot at being a conductor, uh, fill in the gaps, if you will. So I was able to audition for a bunch of grad schools at what I deemed and I researched were the top. Mm-hmm. I skipped Juilliard for different for reasons because the teacher and David and Alistair are both Mueller students and they just said, what I need to know about that teacher. And that wasn't going to be a good fit for me, mm-hmm. even though he's a phenomenal teacher and he's brilliant and he's taught billions or billions, hundreds of students <laughs> in conducting and also made some really wonderful orchestral musicians out of Curtis and Juilliard, but it mm-hmm. wasn't for me. So 
for me, it was Manhattan School of Music, Rice, you know, the, the usual Northwestern, Peabody, yeah. um, the top five that I deemed at the time. And I had a good tape from conducting stuff at Cal that I put together, and I got I got a lot of auditions, and I took a lot of auditions that year. And that was a good bottleneck. It's like, okay, well, I'm applying yeah. to some top five, ten schools, and I'm getting auditions. That's that's cool. That's that's t- The world's telling me something. Um, and then when I took the auditions, the first one I took and got into was Manhattan School of Music. And, um, when I went back to Berkeley, my teacher, he said, good, you're going to New York. And I'm like, no, I haven't heard from Rice or Peabody. He's like, no, 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 no. You're going to New York City. Because mm-hmm. he knew that's like a wonderful place to be educated. And sure enough, I, I got a lot, a lot out of being in New York City for the decade that I was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, more than I can thank, be thankful for for him and the, and, the, and the schooling and the teacher and the colleagues and the concerts and everything. So I went to Manhattan School of Music. I studied with a really phenomenal musician and conductor named Denick McCall. Um, he's a Czech conductor. He was at the New Jersey Symphony at the time. And he went on to the Czech Philharmonic. And, I mean, he's one of those great old world, old school conductors. Yeah. And he was a want. We had a lot of resources at that school there's just two of us in that conducting class three of us in my first season my first year and two of us in the program my second year we had a full orchestra every week we had him as a teacher we had our resident conductor david gilbert as a teacher we had any guest conductor we could pick up off the street we kind of joked we could dress a homeless guy and bring him in and teach us petrushka because we really wanted to conduct petrushka or something (laughs) we never did that but um you know chalabadaki lived in new york city so not chalabadaki excuse me Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Sergio Commissione um, lived in New York City. Um, you know, anyone who was in town, David Zimmer was in town, we asked him to do something and they usually said yes. Like, yeah. we got anyone who was guest conducting to come through. It was, we kind of built our own program, especially my second year. Hmm. That's awesome. So we had a lot, a lot of experience, a lot of people um, to kind of teach us a lot of different things. And I think that was a really good lesson. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at conductors who are making careers, they all do it a different way. They have a different technique. They have a different style. They have a different rehearsal technique. They have a different path. Mm-hmm. Lots of different paths. So to have different people teaching us as opposed to the same person teaching us every week was really a boon. It, it really opened our minds up to the possibilities. And I was very grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I've been doing at that program and since then, since covering is trying to find out what was in, what everyone had in common. Yeah. You know, not their differences and not what they were bad at, but what were they all good at? What did they have? That was a kind of a through a thread of that made them great. Mm-hmm. And, and what did you find? <laughs> <laughs> There's an article coming out with that soon um, okay. on our website, but no, I'm, um, I'll start with McCall because I think that was the best education. And while I respect teachers, um, I've said with all the great undergraduate teachers, like I'm not going to name names. I don't want to offend or upset or even propagate somebody. Like I've, if you've heard of like an under a graduate, a great top 10 grad school conducting teacher, I've at least assisted them or studied with them or had private lessons with them or seen them work or like, like I know all of them and I, and I've worked with all of them at some point in some way mm-hmm. and they're all wonderful. 
Um, but they have a technique. They've built us a, they're, they're, they're teachers and they've built a technique and a way to teach, which is the hardest thing to do to teach conducting, but they've had, they built their own system of how to teach. And like, thank you because it's such a great foundation from all these teachers, like, or else we'd be all be lost. Mm-hmm. But what I found when I went to McCall, since he was not a teacher, he was a, only a professional. Okay. He just taught us because he lived in Manhattan and, and, um, was the music director at New Jersey Symphony and also the Manhattan School of Music was that he didn't approach it from a technique about your conducting. He didn't care about what I did conducting wise mm-hmm. with my hands or anything, my eyes or anything. He just cared about what it sounded like. Okay. So every time we started with the orchestra, he's like, it sounds bad. <laughs> so fix it. And so it either sounded bad because we didn't know the score well enough. I mean, it all, it all goes back to the technique stuff that we learn in grad school. But he does it the he did it the reverse. He's like, it sounds mm-hmm. bad. You don't know the score, and you're not cueing anything, and you don't know, you're not confident in your any of you don't know the score. You haven't studied. Yeah. Uh, you're not. It does sound bad because your technique is bad. You have to figure out a way to fix that. Uh, it sounds bad because you're not rehearsing well. It sounds bad because you don't have a vision. It sounds bad because you're not being inspiring. It sounds bad because you're not like getting fixing the problems with your eyes and your left pinky and your, or your voice. Like you're not, you're so it was be, it was becoming more about opening your ears to what the orchestra was doing. Yeah. As opposed to thinking about how you were conducting. Mm-hmm. And then like any instrumentalist, when we achieve, when we achieve the point where we're not thinking about a physical technique in our instrument and we're just listening to how we sound, knowing that our technique will compensate or at least make what we want to sound happen. Mm-hmm. in our instruments we all have experienced this yeah that that switching point where you're no longer thinking about the shifts or those fingerings and you're just kind of listening to your sound and your and your and your phrasing and whatnot and your mm-hmm. tone quality and you're not hearing the hiccups and the shifts and everything that's what he had for conducting and i thought that was really interesting mm-hmm. so you're and your orchestra is your instrument so if you're always listening to them and blaming yourself when it sounds bad and trying to figure out what your what to do differently to make it sound good that's a good place to start and I think a lot of professionals do that. I think they're yeah. listening first. I see. And the orchestras know when you're listening as opposed to when you've studied so much that you can anticipate problems and kind of make stuff up because your score says the flute will be late. Or <laughs> that's usually a C sharp in most parts, but it's a C natural in the corrected score. And so you might say, you know, they know when you're kind of yeah. full of shit. Excuse my language. Yeah. <laughs> and very quickly, actually, within within minutes or seconds. So if you're listening... And really listening and appreciating what they're bringing to the table, that's when they know that they have a colleague and an ally on the podium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's so different from what, at least what I've experienced and heard of in most training, you know, especially if, if we don't have an orchestra to work with, if we're just like being silent or just talking through scores, um, you know, we're so focused on ourselves and so, you know, when we get that chance, that's that's a really good reminder to to start with that, to start with that in mind. Start listening first, and then and then I love that blaming yourself, or or asking where is you know where what's the reason <laughs> what's the reason for this? Yeah. yeah, and the one out hey guess what one out of hundred times it's not your fault. Mm-hmm. You can take that home, <laughs> put on your mantle, and be happy and super proud of the moment where. But you know, a lot of times it is. Yeah. And even if it's not something like, I didn't crack that note, of course I didn't crack the note, I'm not playing that instrument. But I can often find, look at a video and say, a horn's about to crack based on that gesture, and sure enough, the horn cracks. Mm, so there's something yeah. that we do physically as a conductor um, that makes people play comfortably 
or with support or with a breath or with enough anticipation with enough of a acknowledge of what you're wanting so it's not abrupt you mm-hmm. know that you're able to look when you're looking at videos that you can kind of see what would you be able to play how would you play that note so i spent a lot of time looking at my early videos or even in the mirror saying would i play on time with that kind of upbeat mm-hmm. would i play with a nice sound would i play with the right kind of articulation based on my upbeat just there yeah was that too fast does that make sense like and even with the sound off, you can kind of tell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting. What we do is fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did this experiment, and and you know, let me know if this if you think this would be useful. Because um, I, I found a lot of benefit out of it. As I would I would practice conducting a section, um, and then I would take just like a one minute video on my phone, so I could just go back and forth really quick, and I would you know conduct it internally, and then separate myself from that, and as if I were playing it and see if, if how I'm reacting to it is is what I was intending. And that was very, very revealing. And, you know, it just took one minute taking a video on my phone. And that, that sounds a bit like, like what you're describing. Yeah, except I didn't have a phone. That day. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I had a mirror yeah. back in the day. Yeah. We called them mirrors. Mm-hmm. Or no, I had a, a, a high-eight video camera and then a DV video camera. And, and yeah, that... But yes, that's exactly the point, and yeah. that's wonderful. You have guys have access to that, and I think that that'll tell you what the orchestra. If you're if you're a musician looking for that, you'll know. You'll know if you can play with that kind of technique and that kind of breath and that kind of upbeat mm-hmm. pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what was there another bottleneck that you put on yourself after graduating, after going through school? What was what was kind of the next step in your in your path? Yeah, I mean, I think if I can back up a little bit, mm-hmm. um, and there were there are always bottlenecks for sure, and I think this, to to sum up the bottleneck um, theory or method is I think reading the room and looking at the world and seeing if you are going to be able to is the world telling you nine out of ten times that this is something you should do. And it can come in different forms. Can, of course, after concerts, people are going to say that was great. Or in audition, they're going to say you you should have won, but you didn't. Whatever. Yeah. Just like still filter through those things and spend time with your friends in the orchestra. Spend a lot of time with the concert masters of orchestras I conducted. Um, spend a lot of money on alcohol, buying them um, <laughs> drinks afterwards. <laughs> That's where the truth comes down there. <laughs> right. And like, and I said, I want to know. I want to know yeah. what's good and what's bad. I want to talk about Boeing's. I want to talk about my rehearsal technique, I want to talk about my physical technique. And yeah, it's a lot about me, 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 but that's what a lot of music is. But we don't have a practice room and a, and a recording and a masterclass situation and, and studio classes that they have. Like we only have the, pe- the people in the orchestra who are watching mm-hmm. us and have an opinion. So I just at different points in my in my career, whether it's like beginning to start conducting, you know, applying to grad schools, getting into the right grad school, after graduating grad school, I told my parents if I don't earn a living conducting, like cobbling a career together, doing the different things within three years, like a real living, then I would stop and I would I would switch to something that was more secure, like teaching or go to that grad school program I thought I might do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I always want to keep music a part of my life, which we can all do and we all do do. It's composing on the weekends and arranging and, and conducting, coaching a youth orchestra or conducting a marching band or 
you know, working with them in the, in the mornings on Saturday morning, whatever. Like we all yeah. have ways to, to keep music in our lives. Um, even if it's not a career, but I mean, I wanted, I, I told you at the onset, like as, as first generation immigrant and as a son of immigrant parents, like I knew I didn't want to be poor and I knew I didn't, I knew I wanted to get married and I knew I wanted to have a life and not, not be, um, struggling because life's too short to struggle. I want to focus on what I'm good at. And if the world is telling me that I'm good enough to do it and I have something to offer, be open to that, the world telling you that, but also be open to the world telling you, maybe not mm-hmm. like maybe mm-hmm. this is not your strength and maybe you're going to do a really wonderful world changing work doing something else, slightly adjacent, but something else yeah. or something completely different. I mean, I've, I know some phenomenal musicians conductors and musicians that are lawyers now or doctors now and we all find the way to get to where we need to get to and i still think the hardest thing to do is teach high school students or middle school students like i i I couldn't imagine right now and i have friends who do it and thank god they do it because it's really the lord's work it's really building an audience and and an appreciation and fundamentals and i don't have that patience you know, I barely have patience for a professional orchestra. But <laughs> teasing. Um, so God bless it. And, and those are more secure jobs. Um, those are, I'm, I'm more of a risk taker. So I knew that I was going to go for the gold at some point when I, when I, the, the world was telling me I, I have a shot at this, mm-hmm. but you can't, there's one of the things like it, I, th- I actually wrote an article about this. Like you have to be risk averse. You can't be risk averse. You have to, you can't have a safety net, really. You mm-hmm. might take it, you know. Yeah. Um, if your goal is to, sh- to 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 shoot for the moon. But the reason why I wanted to back up a little bit is because I remember the moment where I decided to become a professional musician. Yeah. To disavow my UC Berkeley education and my two <laughs> degrees and my parents and everything and say, you know what? My, I'm gonna set these bottlenecks. But I'm gonna have realistic expectations, and let's see what the minimum I can do today is. I'm gonna have a grad, I'm gonna have a BA in music and rhetoric from a good school. I have this and this experience in marching band, this next experience in orchestra, this and this experience in coaching, and I think I could get a teaching job. I think mm-hmm. I could get a teaching job at some point next three years. Maybe that's my next bottleneck. Teaching marching band, teaching youth orchestra, teaching and getting a middle school job, like. And I would earn a living. And then I could do other stuff for money on the side. I could do some internet stuff. I grew up in Silicon Valley. So I'm like, I can do work from home, doing other things. I can work on the weekends. I can do a range. I can find other ways to make a good living. But I know I can have a base level experience making a living, conducting, or at least being a musician and teaching. I love the teaching part of conducting. So I'm like, I'm good with, I'm fine with being a teacher. I don't need to make $300,000 as a lawyer. I can make 30 as a teacher and I will be happy. And I remember because I was at Ken Keister's workshop in Madomic and everyone took a we were in a, like an off campus place doing like a meditative hippy dippy, whatever we were doing in Madomic, um seance of conducting. And I remember everyone hopped in the car and went back. I'm like, I'm going to walk. So I was walking down this dust, just dirt road and I made that decision. I said, look, I'm comfortable making a certain amount of money if music is part of my life. And mm-hmm. I am good with that. And I'm telling myself I'm good with that. I'm not I'm specifically not saying I'm going to be disappointed if I never conduct the New York Philharmonic. I'm going to be disappointed if I never conduct a Brahms symphony. I'm going to be sad if I never conduct Mahler 2. 
That's 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 the antithesis of what I said. I said I want to have music in my life, and I can do it at this level, making about this much money, and anything on top of that is gravy. Mm-hmm. That's when it switched for me. Yeah. Because I realized I could probably do it and do okay. Yeah. So I think that's that's another part of the way I guided myself in my career is that I wasn't desperate. I'm sure there are moments where I was desperate. I take that back. <laughs> or at least came across desperate. But I was never needy and wanting and needing to conduct an orchestra. Mm-hmm. I was never like it was never I, I didn't come from it from like a power thing or an idolization of conductor thing or an ego thing. I'm sure I have all those things now. I'm not saying I don't. We all do. But it never came from that. It came from as an orchestral musician. And what I discovered when I started conducting and when I realized I wanted to do music in my life and when I started being a little bit more than my career prospects or my trajectory came a little bit more than um, like a, a music educator, which I'm not poo-pooing at all. Like, again, God's work. And thank thank you for all doing all of you who do that. But when I realized that my trajectory was a little bit more, it, it that confidence came from my realization that I want to do music in my life. And actually, the best way I was going to be a musician was actually conducting. Yeah. Like, I was very quickly a better conductor than I was a horn player, a better conductor than I was a composer, a better conductor than I was a music educator, a better conductor than I was uh, a, a music theory person or, mm-hmm. you know, like that just was, that was, I found this track that I was actually instantly a little bit better than it. Same thing happened with French horn. When I was playing violin, I was in the back of the first violin, second violin section of all my youth orchestras. When I started French horn, I was the principal horn, like within a couple yeah. of years, <laughs> you know? So like, why would you want to fight something the world's telling you you're not a great violinist, but you're one of the better horn players here and you can actually do something with that. Mm-hmm. So the same thing with conducting. So that was kind of in tandem. I was like, I am empathetic with the, I play in orchestra my whole life and I am empathetic with what they go through. So if I'm actually a decent conductor physically and I'm working on the other stuff and I have the right personality for it and I can make my friends in orchestras lives a little bit better by conducting them in a way that they appreciate by becoming, by working on my craft and also listening and empathizing with their perspective, sitting in hours and hours of rehearsal with one person telling you what to do and how to do it. That might be something that I would be specifically good at mm-hmm. and specifically could make a career out of, or yeah, I think that set me apart. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Having that perspective. Yeah. I really like the, the change of um, you absolutely want to be in music like that. That sounds like it's, it wasn't a question after that moment, but then, you know, what was the best way to do that? You could have continued playing horn but you can much faster and what comes more naturally to you go through conducting. So I love that you, that you, you know, picked that as I'm going to be in music and this is probably the best way for me to be in music. Yeah. I think for, I, th- I think for all, for all parties involved, <laughs> like no one wants to hear me play French horn anymore. Sadly. Um, I wasn't too bad. I was pretty decent, but, um, I didn't. I knew I didn't have the work ethic to play horn for four or five, six hours a day, and then take auditions and fail at those auditions, and 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 get back up on and bootstrap myself up to the next audition and be perfect. And I knew that wasn't me. Um, mm-hmm. 
and I knew I wanted, like we all found, we all think conducting is interesting because of what it encompasses. Like I said, when I first found it, it encompasses a leadership quality. You learn languages, you travel, you study scores, you study theory, you study history, you study context. There's a physicality to it. There's a, there's a generosity to it. There's a personality part to it. There's a objectivity to it. There's, there's a philosophical part to it. You know, there's, there's all these interesting, uh, it distills so much about leadership and human, humanity mm-hmm. in one little job that I knew I would never get yeah. bored of. I knew I'd never get bored. Even if I was not making a lot of money conducting, I knew I'd always find really interesting things, whether they're in a Beethoven symphony or a job interview or the first time I conducted an orchestra. Like that's exhilarating. And it's, uh, you learn so much from it. It never mm-hmm. gets old, what we do. Mm-hmm. Or it Absol- shouldn't. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I agree absolutely with, with all of that. Um, We're the luckiest people in the world. Yeah. We have the best job. No matter how successful we are, however you want to judge it, we're the luckiest people in the world. We mm-hmm. we have figured out something that is a really wonderful interdisciplinary career. Yeah, we we get to work by ourselves and with others. We get to you know do our own hard work and then combine that with other people's hard work. It's a good, it's a great thing Absolutely. to do. Absolutely. You 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 mentioned earlier that you you're you're a risk taker. You're very open to taking those risks. And some something I've noticed in our in our talks is that while you while you're taking risks, I think you're also taking them in a very in a very safe way. Um, if you know if if you you're would right. be if you would be happy with any you know any amount of music in your life, that's a that's a that's a very safe way to take a risk because, you know, you, you can't really fail. And then <laughs> you're telling the secret. It's actually not a risk. I know. Right? <laughs> it's actually not a risk because mm-hmm. the net is there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think a big thing that a lot of young conductors and since we talked last week, this has been going through my head all week is that every young conductor seems to start out with that, idea of if I don't conduct the New York Phil, I'm a failure or I'm not a real conductor. Um, and I, I was, I, the conclusion I came to was like, absolutely, you know, shoot, shoot for that, but also be very realistic. Um, because as I've been getting older, I've been realizing that I, I don't think I want to ever conduct the New York Phil. I don't think I'm ever going to be able to, to be at a at a point as a musician that I'm going to be anything but flailing my arms. I mean, I the better a musician I get, the more I know how high their level of musicianship is. Yes. And yeah. <laughs> I mean, having conducted them, the 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 last. <laughs> The last concert I conducted was in New York Philharmonic in February of, of 2020. Oh, really? Yeah. The week after that, I went to Omaha to do the rehearsal, but we never conducted a concert. And I mm. don't think I've conducted a concert since then. Yeah. But they're lovely. They're amazing. <laughs> um, they are friendly and intimidating. They're all of those things. And like I said, I think it's exhilarating. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I built that confidence to get to a point where I'm I'm not phased by conducting yeah. a group of musicians that are all better than me. Like let's be honest. Like they're all just yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. Like I know I have something to offer. Yeah. 
And that confidence comes from what I've built over the years. I wouldn't have had it when I was 23 and 21 and 25. No way. I would have been like, shoot me now. I don't want to conduct them. I, I was at rehearsals because I was I lived right there. I lived across the street. And I would roll out of bed, grab a coffee and a bagel and go to rehearsals because I knew people in the orchestra and I knew people in the administration. And I saw rehearsals where I was like, I would hate to be the conductor right now. <laughs> I would hate to have that person tell me that in a rehearsal and i don't know what i would do with that i would die i would die right there on the podium mm-hmm. <laughs> no thank you um but then i you know two decades later or whatever 15 years later it's not it's not as daunting as it was yeah but i, I built that callous and i must callous is not the word it's actually the opposite but i built that confidence i knew i had something to offer um when i conduct them i'm not going to solve every problem not i'm not a genius i'm not Leonard Bernstein, but I belong there, and I mm-hmm. and I know that, mm-hmm. and I've done the work to do that, and that confidence, that's where confidence needs to come from, at least for me. It was never um, fake, and it was never uh, constructed or uh, fabricated. It was never built on top of a callus, where I was like, I'm not paying attention to the person who makes a bad face when I make a comment to them. I'm ignoring that. I'm ignoring... I was never ignoring when I felt like I had a bad rehearsal or a bad concert. I always wanted to learn more about what that was and what the feedback was, um, what I did well and what I could have done differently. Like, there's a lot of conductors who just have a callus and they think, you're upset because of something else not about me. Hmm. And I think you have to read the room a little bit like I've been saying, and say, well, not maybe it's not all me. Maybe someone had bad a bad lunch or broke up with their boyfriend or girlfriend last night. But maybe it was me. Yeah. So let me think about that. Um, yeah, no, I mean, you said something I want to go back to a little bit. But, yeah, I mean, it's not a risk if, if New York kind of – this is what I was trying to say. <laughs> If you feel like conducting a major orchestra or New Yorkville or Berlin or Mahler II or, you know, whatever that goal is you might have when you're young, and if that's the definition of success and failure, you're really setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. And it's all of us. It's not just conductors. If if I meet a horn player or a young oboe player and they say, if I don't win a job in the Boston Symphony, I'm a failure. Mm-hmm. There's only a certain percentage of us where that's a hugely motivating thing that actually gets you that job. Mm-hmm. There are some people who say that, who put it on their vision board and get that job. And I know them because they're in those jobs. Mm-hmm. But it's a such a small percentage of people who have that ability and that personality and that technical ability and musicianship. And also that extra thing to actually be able to do that. Where it's not a deterrent, it's not a negative thing, but it's actually a huge positive for them. I think for the rest of us, it can be a huge thing that we're all going to have to get over because we're not all conducting the New York Philharmonic, and I'm and I'm not conducting the Berlin Philharmonic as much as I'd like to, you know, mm-hmm. um, one day. But it's that can't be the goal because then you lose sight of the journey, yeah, and you lose sight of the process, and you lose sight of what you need to do to get to where you belong and where you need to get to, where you are going to get to, where you're destined to get to. Because mm-hmm. you're focused too much on this weird thing that is very little about your conducting technique. Yeah. Very, there might be very little about your, your actual ability as a conductor and more about other stuff we'll talk about in the podcast. <laughs> um, and um, I think that's 
you should know that going into any career that you should build reasonable expectations and these bottlenecks in order to the bottlenecks didn't dissuade me they made me work hard and then gave me confidence once i was through them yeah yeah and part of the issue with with setting your sights on that one thing and that one thing only is is like you said it's not entirely your you're conducting or you're playing a lot of unfortunately a lot of that is out of your hands it just depends on so many other things and other people um so another thing i just wanted to highlight from 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 what you said is um that you you didn't really want to fail at anything like if you were gonna whatever you were gonna do you wanted to do it very 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 well um and and again that's another thing that i've been thinking about all week since we since we talked last like you can spend your entire life um trying to get to that top tier and only doing like an okay job at everything you're doing or you can find where you can be really valuable and then be the best person in the world at that one thing and i think that's that's a whole lot more impactful and fulfilling yeah i mean that's part of my i i I'm I'm jokingly saying my Indian upbringing, but it's not really a joke. Like my dad came to the U.S. with his father giving him everything he'd earned over his life to pay for the plane ticket and his initial couple months uh, for grad school. Like, Mm -hmm. and he started a life with very little, and he and he and we were very poor for a little while, and you know, and it and I saw him work so hard, and my mom worked extremely hard at their small business, and it had ups and downs. And now they're successful. Like later on in my life, they became successful. And for a lot of my life, young life, they weren't. But they worked hard. And they knew they would succeed. And they they knew they had the ability to, and the vision and the, and the work ethic to get that done. But guess what? Like when I talk to my wife, who's a doctor, and I say, hey, of the people who you went to med school with and studied medicine with, how percent of those people are doctors? She's like, all of them? Like 95% <laughs> of them? I'm like, aha. So yeah, so people I went to grad school with and went to conducting workshops with and, you know, played in my orchestras at Manhattan School of Music, it's more like 10 or 20%. Mm-hmm. So that's just the reality of our career. That's what we've chosen. And yeah. so I knew that and I knew I didn't want to fail. So I set up these bottlenecks like I've talked about and I worked my ass off and I tried to be as smart about this as possible and I tried to I mean I was annoying I would ask everyone I took a conducting master class with or met or did a workshop with or studied with at all and I basically asked the same question do you think I can do this for a career mm-hmm. do you see any reason why I wouldn't be like base level youth orchestra high school whatever conductor like do you see any reason why i couldn't like is there something is there a big mole on my head that i can't see that no no one's gonna hire me because of Uh like what am i not i want objectivity tell me what i need to work on in order to get a career in in, in this and i took the feedback they gave and and it made me confident and i'm repeating myself a little bit but it, it made me realize i could do this and once i realized i could do this and then once i realized i could be one of the better ones i was unleashed yeah then i had no excuse (laughs) then it was only on me yeah like if i didn't know that piece of music that's my fault if i couldn't transpose that instrument in like that that's my fault if i couldn't play the piano like a score that's my fault if i Mm -hmm. couldn't didn't know that thing in french that's my fault and those are still my fault i'm not perfect 
But there are things that that I'm that I'm remembering in my life and my career that made me like, shit, I can do this. And people are telling me I can do this, and the world's telling me I can do this. So and I, I need to actually do this. Mm-hmm. And I know if it was the opposite, I would be like, cool, I'm not doing this. I'm gonna find my lane that I'm the best at, and be the best at that, whether it's in business or law, or be a judge, or go to politics, or whatever was going to be. Um, I was going to be the best at it because. I was going to set myself up for success and read the room and read the world and set up these bottlenecks. And I just knew that I wanted to, to be exceptional, whatever I did, not for the recognition of like, Oh, Wikipedia, Ankush Behel is the best uh, landscape portrait iPhone user photographer <laughs> in the world. That's not for the, for the fame of it. It's just because that's my pride. Mm hmm. Like I knew I had to be the best at whatever I did, or else it wasn't worth doing. Mm-hmm. And that's also why I didn't—I don't think I would have picked something where I was one of many doctors or one of many lawyers. Yeah. I wasn't interested in that. One of many accountants, and people are great at those things, and I have great friends who are all those things and are exceptional at those things. But I wanted to be singular. Yeah. In in what I was going to do with my career, and it ended up being conducting. It just happened to be conducting. <laughs> I just happened to find the lane that I was actually decent at. Yeah. And I'm very, very lucky. I always kind of say, like, if, you know, if Michael Jordan pursued baseball as opposed to basketball, we saw what happened. He's an okay baseball player, and he's the best baseball basketball player in the world. Mm-hmm. If Tiger Woods was never handed a pair of golf clubs, he might have been a really good accountant and a, or a really good doctor or a really phenomenal um, swimmer or badminton player or tennis player, like, for a high school, college level, full scholarship. But golf was his thing. Mm-hmm. Like he was able to find that thing that fit his body, his personality, his work ethic, his confidence, his physicality, all of that. And he's running with it. He ran with it. And along his journey, he probably, you know, he read the room and he got that feedback that this is something that he could be great at. I'm sure one, I'm sure he had the same moment we all had. It's like, (laughs) holy crap, I can make money doing this? Okay, hold on. Okay, hold on. Hold my beer. Hold my golf club. I got to figure this out. So what are some of, I think you hinted at it earlier, um, what are some of the other things that we can do to ensure that we have, you know, we move to that next section of our career? Um, I think in anything that we do, um, whatever career we want to achieve, whatever whatever industry and whatever position, I think time is on our side and we would be smart to kind of what I say, reverse engineer um, the person's career who has the job you want potentially one day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that can go for any career, whether it's like, I want to be the music director of the LA County youth orchestras who has that now. How did they get to that position? What's their biography look like? What's their education look like? What's their, who do they study with? What instrument do they play? Um, were they the assistant conductor somewhere? Were they did they have another youth orchestra somewhere? Um, or I want to be the conductor of a small opera house in San Antonio. Okay, so who's there now? Okay, they were a pianist. Okay, they were a coach. Okay, they went to this grad school. They're not that. They didn't go to Juilliard. Okay, they actually went to Bowling Green. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, cool. Like 
you need to look at people's biographies and do the research um, of where you want to be. Take mm-hmm. the time. I'm often shocked when I meet conductors or people in careers, instrumentalists, and they have no – an oboe player has no idea about the principal oboe player of the Boston Symphony that made so many – like like a, had a tree of students, like had mm-hmm. a teaching tree and New York Phil and Cleveland Orchestra and like these people like I know who they are and I've heard their recordings and how come you don't know who these people are don't you know your reed making comes from that yeah. or your horn playing comes from that and like Barkus and like it boggles my mind that people don't do the research um, <laughs> so yeah like I think for anything you want to do see the and you're for 21 years old or 18 or 25 and you see a 45 year old or 65 year old in a job that you want one day Figure it out. See how they got there. And maybe not just that person, male or female person. Uh, figure out how maybe there's 16 superintendents of countywide schools that you want to become a superintendent of, of that size. Like, and see where, and kind of like make a map in your brain of like, most people went in this route and most people did this. Like, most people did, were a public teacher first and most people went to a, a, a PhD in education. Like, Whatever it is, you can – I don't know those answers, but whatever it is, you can you can figure it out. And so I tried to do that for conducting. I tried to look at conductors who were like five and ten years down the path for me, assistant conductors of orchestras that I wanted to be an assistant conductor of potentially, or at least the level, mm-hmm. people who had youth orchestras. My, of course, my youth orchestra conductors growing up, see what their paths were because I thought those would be killer jobs, and I've had those jobs, and they were killer jobs. I enjoyed every minute of those jobs, mm-hmm. um, mostly. Not every <laughs> Um but yeah, you have to, at every step in my career, whether like, okay, that person's at Rice. How did they get into Rice? Oh, they went to Aspen. How do I get into Aspen? I want to go to Aspen. <laughs> like, and so you figure all those things out or Tanglewood or whatever it might be. Um, and it can go from the beginning level, like what summer programs did these people go to mm-hmm. in whatever field? What internships did they have? I want to be a lawyer or in banking. What? Where did they intern? Oh, they went to Goldman Sachs. In Idaho, or was it New York? Like, maybe it was Idaho. Like, I don't know. Um, all the way up to what I thought when I was 23 and 25 and looking at conductors in their 40s and 50s and 60s who were American who had major orchestras. So I looked at those people and I said, hmm. I may not get there. We already talked about my expectations of being incremental. But if I'm looking at David Robertson or an Alan Gilbert or David Zinman, or a Leonard Slatkin, um, or a Marin Alsop, or who else was Michael Tilson Thomas? You know, what do all these people have in common? And I kind of thought, and I'm not even doing it now, that's the best part of it, but I, I, the common thread that I saw very early on, one of many, was that they all went, to, a lot of them went to Europe. You know, David Robertson was a French horn player that went to high school in L.A. I was a French horn player I went to high school in Northern California. <laughs> he did what he did as an undergrad, and then he went off to Europe and spent 15, 20 years there, and then came back as music director of the St. Louis Symphony, guest conducting the New York Philharmonic and the National Symphony and all these major orchestras because he had built himself a certain pedigree having been in Europe for so long. Mm-hmm. And um, gosh, same with Alan Gilbert. Michael Tilson Thomas is in London. And David Zimmon had the Tonhalle, though I might be mistaken exactly what he had for fire to Baltimore, and Tonhalle was after that. So don't quote me on Zimmon, and maybe take this out of the podcast, Maestro. Sorry, but um, 
you know, you had, you could see kind of a, a common thread in that. Hmm. Now, I didn't move to Europe, and I'm not in Europe, so I didn't do that. But I was thoughtful about that, and I and I looked at their resumes, and I tried to be a reverse engineer um, as best as I could um, uh, their career. And the reality is, I, I kept working in the U.S., and I was lucky enough to work in the U.S. a lot. And then I had a wife and kids, and that just it became very impractical. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but you know, I tried to create recreate that a little bit, and studying with Kurt Mazur and Christoph Eschenbach was a very thoughtful. I mean. I was lucky to win the job, but when I applied for the job, took the audition, and then accepted the job, I was very thoughtful about what are the top 20 orchestras in the States right now? Who are the music director of those orchestras? And who are the three people I would actually want to learn from? Mm-hmm. Before signing the contract, I was looking in 2011 and 12, who had the top 15 orchestras? Who had good conduct, who good assistant conducting programs? Who had, who, which orchestras had conductors that I actually thought I could learn from and were kind of my speed or my vibe or my energy or, um, something I would fit with. Mm-hmm. And there were very few, shockingly. Cause I wasn't saying, boom, Cleveland Orchestra, yes, Boston Symphony, boom. Like, <laughs> I, and I'm not, those all had great conductors. I'm not, I'm not naming names, but it wasn't like, thank God you're giving me a job and giving me an audition. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Thank you so much. <laughs> It was like, thank you. Let me win the audition. And now let me make sure that this is where I want to dedicate the next two to four years of my life. Yeah. So would I have said no, having won the audition? If I thought it was a bad move, probably not. But I probably would have looked for something very quickly after that first year. And I can definitely say I wouldn't have auditioned. I wouldn't have taken the audition if I didn't think I wanted that job and to work with him in that orchestra that I can tell you for sure (laughs) so if I won it I knew I knew if I won it I would take it Mm -hmm. that's because I'd already done the research I mean I think I had the piece of paper still where I write down every major orchestra (laughs) and I kind of write down the conductor who is now and who's and who's leaving and who's coming and I really circled like five names yeah are you still reverse engineering hmm yeah (laughs) yeah i mean you have to you have to see um how the people are getting to where they are in a general sense or specific sense um and it may not be your path like i didn't go to juilliard and i didn't go to europe and i wasn't a concert pianist and i wasn't a concert master of the concert cabal you know and uh none of those things i did but you're still learning from that experience and you're still learning how you can recreate it. So like I was saying, like, no, I didn't go to Europe, but guess who my mentors are? Christoph Eschenbach, Zenek McCall, Jan von Sweden, John Andrea Nozeda. Like these are all very, among many others who I studied with and learned from and did master classes with and saw them rehearse and conduct in Carnegie Hall for the 10 years, 12 years I was in New York. So I didn't go to Europe, but Europe came to me when I was in New York. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me about planting seeds. I think that when we are younger, we don't realize how much our basic human interactions with people in our career, any career, hmm. affect your career 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years in the future. Okay. And I realized that very quickly, organically, 
but very quickly that these connections you're making at a young age matter and and not all of them are going to grow to be something that you can use or help you in your career or make connections that actually are going to fruit like not everything's going to that's why I call it planting seeds not every seed you're going to plant is going to become a, a a giant red oak or or a beautiful apple tree you can you can be nurtured by mm-hmm. but gosh like if i just take aspen alone like one of my best friends at aspen played in the concertgebouw and that was helpful when i started covering missouri at the concertgebouw and it was not anything to do like there was nothing inorganic or inauthentic about me being friends with these people but i was friendly i was kind i made a good impression to some of these people for some reason and instead of it biting you in the back if you're mean to somebody or egotistical or ignoring them or not kind for some reason or in a bad mood and and blow somebody off because you don't know when that plant seeds in the opposite direction they're going to see your resume at the new york phil or whatever and say no that guy's kind of a douche no thanks (laughs) and that's all it takes someone pulling up a resume at a youth orchestra saying i went to ask him with that guy and i don't know no no and so i am I am ben- I have benefited from me being a gregarious person and me enjoying the company of others and me being um, super interested in other people and getting to know people. And like I said, you take that one summer at Aspen and we have, of course, a ton of conductors that I'm friends with. But like, you know, that person who was in the conducting academy is now an administrator at a major orchestra. Mm-hmm. The person who was a fellow just kind of learning, like interning at the library and being a fellow at the... Um, like an administrative fellow is became the you know the president of the New York Philharmonic, you know, these people who you played an orchestra with or next to are going to be becoming becoming musicians of the New York Philharmonic yeah. or the St. Louis Symphony or what I mean these people these people especially if you're at somewhere like Aspen or Interlochen or Tanglewood or BUTI or Brevard or wherever you're going to it's a hot spot of really talented people. Not just the conductors, the people yeah. who you're rehearsing an orchestra with, or you're playing next to, or you're at the at the lunch spot, the sandwich shop in, in the afternoon with, or at the cafeteria with. It's just these people, if they don't do music, and that's another thing you don't realize, like people from my youth orchestra I'm still friends with and play in the Toronto Symphony and our patent music lawyers and our executive directors at major orchestras or, you know, or, or play in major orchestras or artistic administrators at major orchestras. And they can actually get you work potentially, let alone conductors of major orchestras. So I just think you have to understand that you're going to spend a lot of times making relationships with a lot of people that are genuine. You're not just getting a big email list and emailing you know, everyone, every quarter, what you're up to, because that's not a relationship. But yeah. if you're texting people and checking in with people and writing an email once in a while and like seeing them at a conference and grabbing a cup of coffee with them and having really organic, thoughtful relationships with people who you like. And I, I don't do this with people I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> I just got lucky and a lot of people that I liked and connected with and thought were real and genuine and human and intelligent and brilliant and lovely and generous 
guess what? They all became super successful in whatever they decided to do. Mm-hmm. And the people who were insular and stuck up and egotistical and off-putting and not gregarious <laughs> didn't do as well. Well, I so think they, maybe... you know, they've all been planting their own seeds through their to their career. Also, <laughs> different seeds. It's, yeah, different seeds go seeds. bad too. Exactly. Yeah. And you'd be surprised. I've been in rooms where you look at people just going through resumes like, nope, 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 mm-hmm. nope, nope. Like any excuse, man, any excuse. <laughs> and it's the opposite when you're trying to get a gig or an audition. You need like three or four people to say, oh yeah, yeah, that that guy's he's, yeah. he's nice. <laughs> She's really really thoughtful. She was a really great violinist. I bet you she is a good conductor. Hmm. Like that's you have to. You have to that this is the off the podium non musical musical stuff. It's just yeah. maintaining connections and having and being a normal, thoughtful, generous and and open human being. I think that pays evidence. Now the musical stuff also like like I I met David Robinson very early in his career when he was just coming back to this U.S. from this from the from Europe and mm-hmm. he wasn't the name David Robinson he didn't have a music director position he was guest conducting the San Francisco Symphony and I had a friend who knew him a woman who was a conductor in the San Francisco Bay Area that um, wasn't conducting anymore but someone put me in touch with her and she became someone I became connected with and I was and when I first talked to her on the phone she scared the bejesus out of me and. <laughs> Because she was super hardcore and old school. And then I showed up with flowers to my first meeting with her to thank her for meeting with me and mentoring me a little bit for an hour about conducting. And she completely melted. And we <laughs> like were close ever since. I didn't have to bring flowers. I didn't bring flowers so I would be able to use her for David Robertson's email address. Mm-hmm. I didn't give her flowers for any reason other than like, I, this person's giving me time. Yeah. And I don't want to insult them with any monetary gift or something. <laughs> I'm going to give them chocolates or flowers or something that that's thoughtful that they might appreciate. Mm-hmm. And it opened up a huge door for me. So anyway, Robertson was guest conducting. I got his email address. I emailed him. He emailed me a very thoughtful long email back and said, come to rehearsal. We'll have lunch in between these two rehearsals and we'll chat. And... Um, one of the best pieces of advice, he gave the, a lot of the normal advice, which we all need to know is that we can't we need a, we need groups we need to conduct people we need to mm-hmm. be on the podium as much as possible take every gig you can um as much as humanly possible because you need experience of course but one of the things that he said that i another that was unique and i took away from um was his story about when he actually his career was launched you know, he went to Europe. He was doing all sorts of things, small ensembles, new music, old music, smaller orchestras, regional orchestras. And he was doing fine. He had a career. He had a small career conducting. He was doing fine. But he wasn't – he hadn't shot to the top of the field. Um, and if he's listening or someone tells him, I'm, hopefully I'm not misrepresenting <laughs> what um, I remember from 20 years ago. Um, but what I remember him telling me is, like, then one day I got a – I did a good piece. I did a modern piece of music on this small concert here and someone in that orchestra played in another orchestra and then they thought I could do a new music concert with the ensemble and contemporary. And that was a huge break for me. And that was great. And I was doing a lot of new music because I did good new music here. I planted a seed here, did a, mm-hmm. did a 
modern work well and then someone in that orchestra said oh he does modern works well and so they brought me to that orchestra and it kind of goes from there and it got him to ensemble and contemporain and Pierre Boulez was in the audience in that concert and he didn't know <laughs> Pierre Boulez would be in the audience in that concert so Boulez was there and of course Boulez asked the people in the orchestra is this guy great or terrible mm-hmm. thoughtful a human or an egotistical whatever and they said great things about him and all of a sudden he became mm-hmm. David Robertson music director of that ensemble or at least principal guest or some some title at that ensemble and then <laughs> the rest was history then he was able to build a career in europe not just doing that but doing beethoven and brahms and other stuff we like to do yeah and he was very well deserving of all the guest conducting he got when he came back and he made st louis a phenomenal he helped made <laughs> i don't know grew with them to become st louis yeah. one of the best orchestras in the world Absolutely. in the u.s for sure and he didn't make it worse he made it great yeah so together they got it they got they did something right mm-hmm. yeah i used so. to live not too far from st louis so we used to go all the time and they're phenomenal you know yeah and they have a good Absolutely spirit incredible and they have yes. a good energy and they're nice mm-hmm. but like <laughs> you know we don't all take the the f- orchestras always have so much institutional personality knowledge repertoire um behaviors and the response to music and conductors. Mm-hmm. But conductors can put an imprint here and there. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give us that. We, we do some things once in a yeah. while. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think uh, planting seeds is, is great. Again, this is another thing I've been thinking about all week. Um, you are, you've got a, I mean, you're, let's talk about your new job very quickly <laughs> before we wrap up. Mm-hmm. Um, so Omaha, uh, how do, I, I love the story of how this kind of happened. I think that goes along with planting seeds pretty well as well. Could you just share that quick? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the way Omaha happened more than anything else, gosh, was my thoughtfulness with how I came across um, to people just coming across my name or my website or my bio. Mm -hmm. Creating a story that was non-fictional. It wasn't a fictional story. (laughs) But creating an ability for someone to come across my resume and pedigree and upbringing and experiences and feel very comfortable giving me a shot at guest conducting orchestras at this level. Mm-hmm. And I've been thoughtful about building that um, online presence because I've seen it go the other way. I've been in a dressing room where Kurt Mazur hears the name of a singer, and then he tells his agent to go on YouTube and get search their name and look at the first YouTube video that pops up of that person singing, and then he makes a judgment on their singing ability based on the first 30 seconds of a video that was not submitted but that he found on the Internet. Mm-hmm. And that's Kurt Mazur who doesn't know how to use the <laughs> Internet. <laughs> So when I saw that, I'm like, holy shit, I need to make sure that everything online is what I want it to be. Yeah. So I pulled a lot of videos 
because I don't want someone who to watch a video and have an opinion about my conducting based on my video. Mm-hmm. If you want to see me conduct, invite me to conduct or come to a concert. I know my conducting is good, but I don't want I don't have control of your opinion yeah. of that specific piece, that specific excerpt, that specific sound quality, that specific video quality, that specific any of that. I don't have control over that. And it's not rehearsal. We do most of the stuff we get done is in rehearsal anyways. So mm-hmm. I pulled a lot of my videos. There's still not a lot of videos of me conducting on uh, on online. There will be once I start in Omaha. Um, but just because I, I want to create the narrative that supports um, someone giving me these opportunities. Mm-hmm. So and in in creating that narrative, are there things that you're that you're leaving out besides mm-hmm. conducting videos? Yeah, I mean, if I conduct you know, Louisiana Allstate. I'm not going to put that on my on my on my website, mm-hmm. even though I might have had a great time conducting Louisiana Allstate, and I was already there, and it, they paid well, and I had a wonderful time, and I I made lifelong friends because of that. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter, because the people who are making these decisions don't know how valuable doing an Allstate is, and how important that is to us, and how important it is to the kids, and important for someone who has experiences that I have to do an Allstate like that. Mm-hmm. But like, so but they're still deciding if I should conduct a major orchestra or not. Mm-hmm. But they have no experience in the in in what it is to be a young American conductor. So they're gonna judge you to conduct the concerts that you do. They're gonna judge you just like we judge anyone applying for a job or where we work or making a decision. You're gonna judge everything on the resume. Mm-hmm. One of the most valuable things that I uh, meetings that I had um, was with the artistic administrator of the New York Philharmonic at the time when I was living in New York and I knew people. And again, it was kind of planting seeds. I kind of knew the guy from San Francisco. I'd seen him backstage. We met each other when I saw him in New York, I reminded him of those moments and we had some mutual friends. And I, when I asked him for some, when I asked him for um, time, he gave it to me. And I, but I didn't ask for anything. I didn't ask for a gig. Mm-hmm. I didn't ask for an hour. I didn't ask for lunch. I didn't ask for half an hour. I said, can I come up to your office for 10 minutes? I'm programming my youth orchestra's concert at Carnegie Hall. I'm curious what kind of, because I had a youth orchestra that performed in Carnegie Hall every three or four years. Um, and I, that was my, like, that was my excuse, I guess. And I said, yeah, I'm, I, I have a big concert programming. I'm fully like this. The subject was I'm fully aware that I'm 25, 27 years old. You will. I'm never going to conduct the New York Philharmonic. You're definitely not going to give me an opportunity to conduct New York Philharmonic. My resume currently does not support someone who would conduct the New York Philharmonic. Whether my ability does or not, that doesn't matter. My resume, mm-hmm. my narrative does not. But I used our connection and this concert I had in Carnegie as an excuse because this person does artistic programming to say, what do you think would be really impressive if I had an hour, 60 minutes to program in Carnegie hall. Hmm. And so we went through that and he said, sure, come into my office. I have 10 minutes after this rehearsal, um, bring me a resume. And so I went to him, I gave him my ideas for Carnegie. We talked about that for a couple of minutes. Of course it went more than 10 minutes, but the fact that like we both had a false time constraint of like 10, 15 minutes made it not feel like, oh, God, this is when is this going to end? When is this kid going to be out of my office? Yeah. Like, I asked for 10 minutes. Yeah. It's up to them to make it 10 minutes or 27 minutes, <laughs> you know? But it's it was – I'm thoughtful of their time, and they recognize that. Yeah, I absolutely went into that meeting knowing that I was not ready to conduct the New York Philharmonic, and that mm-hmm. wasn't 
we all knew that wasn't why I was taking the meeting. Just like if you met with an agent, you're not saying, I want you to represent me today. Yeah. Instead, you might be saying, hey, in 20 years or in 10 years or in five years, how would I get to a point where you would consider someone like me? What do I need to do between now and our next meeting eight years from now that you actually might consider me? Mm-hmm. And I've had that conversation with agents and they're like, win a competition, you know, win an assistant conductor job, whatever. And so I did that. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> so I tried to do those things because they told me to. But there was no pressure right at the moment to sign me as an age as a as a as an artist. There's no pressure in that moment to please look at my conducting video because I'm really, really good. There was no <laughs> pressure to do anything except ask him about a programming thing that he's not related to that's not the New York Philharmonic, it's just Carnegie Hall mm-hmm. with my little youth orchestra. So that took all the pressure off of it and we had a really lovely conversation. And when he asked for my after that part of it, he asked for my resume and I gave it to him and he took a big red pen. He runs very well. It's Chad Smith. <laughs> anyone's listening he's executive director of the LA Philharmonic right now and he circled every conductor name and every orchestra name on my resume and he turned it back to me and said if I call all these conductors because I have all their information and I email all these orchestras because they're all friends of mine are they all going to say glowing things about you and I'm like (laughs) maybe most of them not all of them Hmm. he said why is why are they on your resume yeah. Don't you know that I'm going to call them? I'm like, no. I thought having this great orchestra would be really cool and important, and you would just be, that's awesome, and 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 go on. It's like, no. They're going to do their due diligence, too. They're going to call the orchestra you conducted when you were too young to conduct them, and you didn't do a very good job. <laughs> so unless you did a great job, take them off your resume. Yeah. They're going to call David Zinman because I went to Aspen, and unless I impress the hell out of David Zinman, take him off your resume. Hmm. And that goes and go for any field you want to do. If you have a job that you didn't go very well, you know, you can have a little gap year in your resume or not mention a masterclass or not mention a conference or not mention a name. You know, if you think that having Marin Alsop on your resume is going to impress everyone, that's fantastic. I know for a fact that she checks her email and she'll respond to these people when they ask about you. And I know for a fact that she's encyclopedic in her knowledge about you, <laughs> and, you know, because she's yeah. thoughtful and yeah. she's brilliant and she's going to have an opinion about you and she will share that opinion so best be right when you write her name down. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that was a really great feedback um, uh, from from Chad, and I learned a lot from it. And I think that's was a good lesson for me. It's like creating that narrative, whether it's in your bio, on your website, on your online presence, with your mentors, with the orchestras you've conducted, making sure that it all is really quality. None of it's a lie. None mm-hmm. of it's made up. None of the quotes are made up. None of nothing is made up. But you can certainly selectively leave things out mm-hmm. if you conducted the Louisiana Allstate or an education concert at the Cleveland Orchestra. I'm making things. All these things I'm making up. But if you feel like that's not going to get you the concert you want to do next, then you don't need to put it there. Even though yeah. you had a great time doing it, huge learning experience, wonderful <laughs> opportunity, good money. <laughs> they don't need to know that. Yeah. Um, and I think, and I think I still follow that. And I think that was part of the reason why Omaha was willing to give me a chance. And then once I conducted them, guess what? It went really well. We had a great time. It was a mutually amazing week. We had such a fun time. Um, all of us and they immediately asked me back. Yeah. And in the meantime, between my first time and my second time, we created an air. I feel like we, 
subconsciously or unconsciously created a narrative together. Like they came and saw me conduct a concert, the National Symphony. That was a declassified concert with Ben Folds. It was a kind of a non-traditional mm-hmm. concert. And I said, you may not want to come to this because it's not a classical concert. So I made sure that they knew what they were going to see. Yeah. And then specifically, they said, no, no, we want to incorporate non-traditional concerts with our music director, and we want to make sure we, this is something we want to see. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, I'm not the star. Like, this is not me. I'm not, ben is the star of the show. I'm just, you know, <laughs> like, no, 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 we want to see this. And we had lunch afterwards and had to drink afterwards and had dinner beforehand and whatever it was. And we created a whole thing. And then they saw me conduct the New York Philharmonic and they brought the board to come, you know, like you're creating yeah. a story. So when you go back and Ankush has conducted the orchestra this many times, we can conduct this many times outside of the orchestra. Um, we've had these many interactions with him outside of conducting, we, you know, we're creating, like, we feel really confident. We've created this, this, story all true but this really wonderful um narrative that justifies him being considered yeah and that's what any good agent will do create a <laughs> narrative that justifies you guest conducting the like because my agent got me o- omaha yeah i think i mean i didn't get me omaha my agent did but guess what once the agent proposed me omaha called my resume called the national symphony called the other orchestras i was conducting called the new promonic um because and i did and i did well at those jobs thankfully in those in those positions and i had cultivated a story with them a story i had conducted a relationship with them that i knew that they would say nice things because i worked my i worked hard at those jobs and i was always prepared and i and i did what i needed to do and you can do what you need to do unnoticed for decades and then like robertson boulez is in the audience and boom yeah. Like you have to be prepared everything you do. You can't you're unprepared once and the wrong person sees it, you're done. Mm-hmm. At least at the top tier. Yeah. You know. So I think that I mean and that narrative went for a situation where I couldn't do a concert at the National Symphony. And I started recommending to my boss people to do the concert because the first one I hadn't done and he's like, sure, who do you like you're young and you're a young conductor, who do you know that's good? And I could and I could name ten conductors that I thought were really good conductors and deserving of an opportunity. Mm-hmm. But there was really only one whose resume and narrative and story fit, justified that person coming and conducting the National Symphony on a family concert. Yeah. And that's who they took. Yeah. And I learned then I'm like, oh, doesn't matter that I think they're good, or that Marin also thinks they're good, or that Gustav Meyer thinks they're good, or Larry Ratcliffe thinks they're good. It matters that when the National Symphony musicians read their bio in their program, whether it goes good or bad, it's a justified person. This person is a conductor at this orchestra. This person has worked with these conductors. This person has gone to these schools. This person has worked with these institutions. And that's all they're looking for. They're looking the ability to sell this guest conductor, mm-hmm. justify this guest conductor. And no matter how good you are in a bubble in your room at your conservatory, if you have or or at the Louisville Allstate, it doesn't matter if you haven't been able to create that narrative. And a lot of it's luck. A lot of it is being in the right place at the right right time. A lot of it's being like I always joke I've been lucky 16 times, and I hope to get lucky 16 more times to get where I want to be. It's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of this my story that is just pure luck and being at the right place at the right time. But instead of going through those chance things, I think it was good for us to talk about the more thoughtful things. Mm-hmm. the bottlenecks the planting seeds the 
reverse engineering and the creating a narrative. Yeah, the things we can control, the things we can, you know, we can't always, <laughs> we can't rely on luck. It's luck has got to happen, but we can't. It can't be the only way that we get there. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And there's so little we can. There's so little we can control as a musician. Mm-hmm. So to try to start having some control over it is lucky, but also I hope people can hear there's a little bit of thoughtfulness and um, try to be smart about it. <laughs> Without well, ever being inauthentic, I want to caveat. Yeah, I was never yeah. insincere, inauthentic, or nothing was ever fictional, mm-hmm. obviously. But selective is a good word. Mm-hmm. Thoughtful, artful, <laughs> you know. We're all storytellers. Yeah, I think intentional as well, very much. Yeah. Perfect. Well, Ankush, we talked about everything that we'd planned to. Is there anything you would like to plug, um, send people off to go check out? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I kind of alluded to our new website. Um, me and three other really fantastic human beings and conductors started a website called Everything Conducting, and it's everythingconducting.com. Mm-hmm. In it, we have articles that we have published. We've written ourselves and kind, and also some articles we've solicited from people. Um, we're small still. We're not quite everything conducting, <laughs> but we're still building, and we hope to be a really valuable resource for anyone starting out in the field of conducting or maybe in the middle of conducting or just interested in conducting. We kind of want to be as much to conductors as we can Mm -hmm. um, at all levels. I mean, we have an article about setting up your middle school string orchestra program room as a middle school teacher, (laughs) you know, becoming starting off as a high school band director, your first job Mm -hmm. um, all the way to whether an agent is good, a good idea or what your conducting video do's and don'ts of your conducting video or best practice of cover, being a cover conductor or an assistant conductor, or what an assistant conductor audition looks like, or how to conduct movie scores. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of a lot, um, but it could still be more. Oh, yeah. But there's also a podcast uh, called Upbeat mm-hmm. that two of our colleagues are really just doing a great job at. Really great guests, super informative, also hitting a lot of the topics we hit in article form on the website. So it's a free resource. We ask for nothing. Maybe your email address if you want to send it to us, and we'll keep you posted. We don't spam. I think we've sent two emails so far in the past eight months. <laughs> it's a lovely COVID project. It's been something I've been wanting to do for a long time, and yeah. COVID was kind of the excuse to actually take the time to do it. And it's been a huge learning process. Um, and like I said, we're just trying to be helpful. Mm-hmm. You know, We're not asking for anything in return. Feedback is great. Engagement is great. Reposting is great, obviously, because just just because it's get more people involved, more people listening, and more people reading. Um, yeah, top. You know, we're 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 working weekly to build articles, write more things. I'm working on a couple different articles at the same time, and it's super fun. Mm-hmm. And we're just trying to give back. Like I always kind of joke that I I kind of know how to get to where I am now pretty well, but I'm not trying to get. From where I am to the next step, if there is one, I feel pretty comfortable at Omaha. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I want to be helpful for people because there's very little information about career that's given to people in your grad programs. Yeah. And whether it's how to build a resume, a bio, a DVD, or in your case, a, a YouTube link or whatever, um, an audition, like. Just try to demystify that part that we don't really learn in grad school. We kind of learn on the job. And I felt like I had to reinvent every part of this 
and I would like to just pay it forward and let people kind of skip a step and get onto music. Absolutely. If I can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, thanks so much for, for being such a big part of that. I've, I'm reading and sharing everything, conducting, and I've, I've plugged the podcast on here a couple times. Um, I That's really awesome. like Upbeat, yeah. We just, need to, we just need Enrico on now, and we will have the whole team on, on podium nice. time at one point or another. Well, and Anna Edwards, who um, is not on Upbeat, um, but she helps me with the articles a lot. And she, we published today an article where she's just really, really talking about what you said before. Instead of being the one of many people who wait one day conduct the Berlin or New York Philharmonic in the Brahms Symphony, yay, whatever. No one will, like if you look at the Berlin archives, mm-hmm. you'll from there's a conductor you've never heard of that did it 40 years ago. Who cares? Um, <laughs> But being the best at something, being the one person who's the best at one thing, that's really interesting. And Anna Edwards, has, I think, is doing that. And mm. she has a composer database where she's really trying to research living, a lot living, but also some historical dead composers of diverse backgrounds, ethnicities, mm. female composers and whatnot, underrepresented um, minorities and sexes. And kind of what a great time. What 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 is every conductor looking for? A way to diversify their programming at every level, high school, youth orchestra, community orchestra, and whatnot. And mm-hmm. she's giving everyone like these really um, highly digestible um, list of 10 composers yeah. that she's already listened to 100 to get to those 10 <laughs> pieces. And thank you for doing that work. And like talking about creating a wonderful lane and now she's getting recognition for it. And, you know, they're interested parties who want to like kind of use capitalize on her uh, database and as a consultant, which is smart because she's, she's the best at it right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did she think she was going to do that when she was at Monteux studying with Michael Jimbo, whoever, like, and hopefully becoming, you know, we all have what we think our career is going to look like. And it's like that meme. It's like what you think you do, what your mom thinks you do, what you yeah. actually do. <laughs> that thing that was popular 10 years ago. But, like, conducting is all those things. It's going to be what it's going to be. Like, embrace it and just – and when you find out that lane and what your strengths are, go for it. Mm -hmm. And go Mm -hmm. for it with all your your might and all your work ethic and all your power and all your brain power. Absolutely. I think that's a good place to stop if you do. Absolutely. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I thanks so much for your time on Kush. This was this was this was an absolute delight. <laughs> happy to talk to anyone uh, further. Happy to uh, talk to you right now. And like I said, I mean, during COVID time, we have more opportunities to pay it forward. And yeah. um, if people want to reach out, they can do it through everythingconducting.com, everythingconducting at gmail.com, or my on kushbahel.com, my website, and just mm-hmm. you know, keep in touch. Perfect. Thanks, Jeremy. Nice to meet you. Awesome. You too. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Podium Time. You can find everything in the show notes below. And please reach out if you have any suggestions for guests or improvements to the podcast. We're always striving to make Podium Time the best podcast that we can for you conductors and students. So send us a Facebook message or use the contact page on our website with any suggestions you may have. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, and we'll see you next time. Mendelssohn's Italian Symphony was performed by the Czech National Symphony Orchestra, and Beethoven's Egmont Overture was performed by Stefano Ligorati. Mm-hmm.